Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. Out, space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. Dark Gold, written by Hamster IV. War had come to Atraxas Prime. Communications, power, and clean water were its first casualties. They were not the last. Without power, businesses were closed. Without access to global data networks, schools shut down. Only the fuel refinery that employed 30% of the population continued to function due to its invaluable contribution to the war effort. Had it not been for the reassuring presence of the home guard, Masha's mother would have worried about the bands of unemployed miscreants terrorizing the streets. Instead, she had a new fear, and its name was... The humans. Masha had always been a good child, by her own estimation, helping out around the house and quickly memorizing the ideas the teachers presented in school. It seemed terribly unfair for her world to be turned upside down in only a few short months. The trouble started when the government broadcast announced the arrival of an unknown alien menace. Despite the best efforts of conclave diplomats, it seemed the war was inevitable. These newcomers were uncivilized barbarians born of a death world, with all of the cruelty and madness that it entails. They were not technologically proficient to produce spaceships of their own design. Instead, they used their feral cunning to overwhelm civilians and diplomatic transports, then made planet fall in the home world. These captured transports stalked the edges of the Conclave territory, dropping legions of war-mad berserkers on the defenseless border worlds. Masha was sure that it was a rim-world problem. The mighty Conclave Navy would protect the core worlds, including her home of Atraxas Prime. The common consensus amongst the adults was the human crisis would be dealt with before the new year. After the Conclave's inevitable victory, the news would go back to covering the sports, stories, and celebrity gossip. Masha was more than happy to accept this as a foregone conclusion. This assumption lasted right up to the day the foreign ship jumped into Atraxas' star system. It looked nothing like the captured bulk transport. The lines were too angular, there were too many redundant systems, and worst of all, there was not a flying Conclave colors. Whoever built this ship had only one purpose in mind. War. In the early morning hours, Masha's father woke the family so that they could get over the hill overlooking the starport. He saw that is his family's civic duty to cheer on the brave pilots. Together, they saw 60 warbirds lift off from the city's only starport. Their squadrons would be joining fighter squadrons from eight other starports around the planet in the largest display of Conquest space superiority since the unification days of the Tricentennial Fleet Review. Masha's mother packed a picnic so that they could stay all day and with the other families that had gathered on the hill. At about noon, there was a brief flurry of lights and explosions around the human warship before the laws of orbital dynamics took 
the fight beyond the horizon. Masha spent the quiet time weaving the garland of wild flowers. She hoped that she would get a chance to give it to one of the brave pilots when they eventually returned to the base. None of the warbirds returned. The following day, the communication network and power grid stopped working. Water services continued working for a few more days until the water tower ran dry. At least the government radio broadcasts still worked. Music, news, comedy and children's programming still reached the homes every day. The home guard had lauded for their efforts and the off-world reinforcements were coming to save them any day now. Thankfully, Marsha's father had been in the scouts and knew how to decontaminate river water. Their fresh water stand had been hit by the neighbors and earned Marsha some spending money. Not that there was any stalls to spend it. By the end of the first month, things had become worse. All those shops had been looted for anything that could be traded or eaten. Officers from the home guard were still handing out bread at their recruiting drives, but all the young men had already volunteered or gone into hiding. These officers echoed the government broadcast that salvation was only a few days away. They only needed to hold on a little longer. They had been saying that for weeks, yet no vast armada or legion of heavy infantry had arrived to drive away the humans. Soon, the columns of home guard filtered into the cities from the outlying regions. Unlike the well-groomed soldiers who proudly marched in the Unification Day Parade, these men were hungry, dirty, and nervous. Despite the failed power grid, the glow could be seen on the horizon from the sister city to the east. It was burning. Marsha's family did their patriotic duty and housed a squad of newly arrived home guard. The soldiers spoke of many things, but mostly the horror that was the human style of warfare. Marsha could sit on the floor and listen to the tales of the armed fighting vehicles plowing through buildings and forests like a rampaging beast. Other stories would feature human warbirds silently dropping through the clouds, smashing something vital, and then roaring away before the ground forces could raise a weapon in retaliation. As frightening as the stories of the human war machines were, the stories that kept Musher awake at night were of the armor-clad demons in the human infantry. They were reportedly, without fear, advancing through shot and hellfire as if there was summer breeze, the bones were sturdy enough to survive a fall from a third-floor window, and their muscles could generate enough force to shatter reinforced concrete. The home guard soldiers would try and spare Musha the gory details of when urban warfare came to knives and fists, but their polite omission only left a fertile imagination to fill in the gaps. Eventually, the humans arrived at her city. It was everything she feared and more. The soldiers who had come to live in Marsha's family disappeared without saying goodbye. She never saw them again and didn't have the heart to look up their fate after the war. The local home guard commander had come to the door-to-door -door asking everyone to stay in their basements until the all-clear signal was given. Masha and her parents settled into their apartment's communal basement with three other families to wait out the invasion. At first, the gathered families thought it was an earthquake. The roof shook and dust fell from the rafters. Then came the telltale roar of the human warbird fading off into the distance. Similar shockwaves would rock their confined living space with increasing frequency over the next few days. A dull roar of the human fighter bombers became a regular part of their daily lives. 
The constant shaking forced the families to keep heavy objects on the floor and react instinctively to the whisting that preceded the arrival of another heavy explosion. After the sixth day of hiding in basements, a new sound was heard in the distance, the back and forth chatter of automatic weapons. It sounded nothing like the clear, precursive cracks of a weapon in her favorite action drama. Instead, there was a low, bestial rumble to them. Sometimes she would hear a series of quick cack-cack calls. Other times she would be a long stretch of wobba-wobba-wobba-wobba-wobba that she could feel through the base of her feet. The most terrifying, of course, was the thunderous brrrt accompanied by the Doppler shift and the subsonic woman warbird. As much as her father would try and deny it, Mushin knew that these sounds were getting louder and closer. By the ninth day, the fighting was right on top of them. The metallic screech of the human fighting vehicles was more than terrifying in person than the stories of their temporary guests could ever do justice to. From the creaking floorboards, Masha could tell the fighting was raging in the rooms above. There was a savage exchange in the infantry weapon fire in silence. A terrified hush fell across the three families clustered in the basement. It was only broken by words spoken in a strange, glutteral language on top of the stairs. Masha nestled deeper into her mother's arms, hoping the folds of her mother's heavy coat would protect her from the monsters on the floor above. Suddenly, there was a loud crack and the sturdy parasite wooden door flew off its hinges. Several tight beams of blinding light blanched in the darkness and the basement. Heavy footsteps accompanied these lights and the old staircase groaned in protest. A harsh light fell upon Basha and her family. After days in almost total darkness, the sudden illumination was painful, even through closed eyes. There was a brief exchange in the barbaric tongue, and the lights became less focused and more diffused. It was then the Masha got a first look at the creatures that had been plaguing her nightmares for the last few months. They were tall and bipedal, with legs like tree trunks. Each one was clad in segmented armor like the outer shell of a crustacean. Vicious-looking weapons rested easily in their massive gauntlets. Some were still venting heat from recent use. The smallest amongst the human soldiers was still a full head taller than her father, and probably twice as heavy. The fierce debate was raging between the two and the armor-clad titans. From time to time, the shorter one of the two would gesture to her family's direction and made odd noises that seemed out of place in their harsh, glutteral tongue. Finally, the taller one relented and moved away, shaking its head in apparent disgust. The short one, who won the argument, sank to its knees, placing its weapon on the floor before removing its helmet. All Masha could focus on were the glistening row of white dagger-like teeth. The human creature, still on its knees, started shuffling towards Masha and her family, making soft cooing noises as it approached. Even with his half-leg folded under it, the human still towered over Masha's cowering family. Masha was more terrified than she had ever been before in her life. Yet somehow she mustered the courage to meet her death head-on like a brave pilot who had never came back for the victory garland. The human was now in striking distance, and it reached out with one of its massive armored gauntlets. Masha braced for the worst, but the human only touched her lightly and her nose before withdrawing. As the human delivered the surprisingly gentle touch, it worked its dagger-lined mouth to utter the sounds, boop-de-snoot. Masha reached up to her nose to check that it was still there after contact with the nightmare beast. 
Perhaps it was a speck of dust clinging to the human well-worn gauntlet or the light tap that tickled her nose hair in the wrong way. But Masha let out a tidy sneeze. The human filled the cramped basement with space, apparently found this hilarious. Every one of the armed giants erupted into a deep, booming laughter. The human that had delivered the boop backed away and cocked his head in an inquisitive posture. No longer fearing the immediate death by his hands, Masha looked up from the low row of dagger dyke teeth. There was a playful glint in the human's eyes, and the features were unmistakably feminine. Years of conclave propaganda taught Masha to fear and hate the offworlder, but a release of tension in the moment was too great. Her lips gave way to a hopeful smile. In response, the human produced a tiny foil-wrapped bar from one of the many pouches that adorned her armor. Pinning away the foil, the soldier revealed the thick, dark, reflective substance. It smelled faintly of sweet cakes handed out by the Midsummer Festival. Using slow, non-threatening motions, she broke off a small part of the bar and dropped it onto her mouth before offering the rest to Marsha's. The human eyes closed as she appeared to be enjoying the flavor of the mystery substance. It had been two days since Marsha's last meal. Before her mother could object, Marsha stuffed as much of the bar into her mouth as she could. The experience had indeed as intense as the human had indicated. It was rich and filling with the promise of calories and vitamins that her body almost forgotten how to deal with. Massa chewed the substance in ecstasy for a few minutes as her body became reacquainted with the feeling of a full stomach. When she could eat no more, she passed the precious dark substance onto her mother. The human smiled and told Masha her first human word. Chocolate. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.